0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. <laughs> I'm Caitlin. I enjoy fishing for salmon and compliments.
1: I'm Cameron, and I am conspicuously committed to questionably creepy Terrans, which are bats. I just oh, said I like <laughs> bats.
2: I am Rosalind Eves, and one of my favorite rhetorical devices actually comes in the form of a joke. I'd like to die peacefully in my sleep, like my grandfather, and not screaming like the passengers in his car.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Aaliyah, and I also chose alliteration, and so I am an all-around authentic armadillo accoster, which means <laughs> I may not have hit a carcass on my bike. Oh
2: no. Oh.
3: oh no. When did that happen, Aaliyah? When I was living in Florida, and there were dead things all over. Oh, worst smell you'll ever imagine.
1: you are bringing endorsement of the state.
3: This week we have guest Rosalind
0: Eves, who is the author of Blood Rose Rebellion, Lost Crow Conspiracy, and the forthcoming Winter War Awakening from Knopf Books. When does your book come out, Rosalind? Is it in March or May?
2: March. March. March 19th.
0: I'm so excited to read the last one. I've been following her series since it came out.
2: So (laughs) super excited.
0: So this week we are talking about using rhetorical and literary devices in your writing without making them too purple or heavy. And so I just wanted to start by asking the group, how do you guys feel like you can progress as a writer? It doesn't necessarily have to be about literary rhetorical devices, but like improving your craft in general. What are ways that you have found to progress in your craft?
3: Well, I know the most common saying is great writers are great readers. And I know for me, at least, my writing starts to take on kind of a little bit of the taint of whatever I happen to be reading at the time. So if I'm reading this really professional book, then my prose might sound a little stiff. Or if I'm reading a really gorgeous and beautiful wordy book, then it might start to sound like that. But it's kind of like a smoothie for me. What I put into my well comes out in a different form. And so, for me at least, when I am writing in a certain genre, I like to read in that genre as well to kind of get the feel for what's going on and kind of what it should look like.
0: I agree, there have been many books that I've read that have inspired me to write other books that are not anything like the book that I read, but that made me want to sound like that author or to do something as cool as that author had done.
2: Reading is a big one, but also reading craft books and then trying to take what, trying to apply what I see in the craft books to what I'm reading. Like if I'm working, you know, if I'm like my first chapter doesn't work, I'll pull out a bunch of books that I love and look at what they do in their first chapter to kind of get ideas for what's working and maybe what's not working. So I think like, reading, but also trying to figure out what it is about the thing that I'm reading that I love.
0: Being analytical about your reading. I think that's so hard because when you become a writer, sometimes it's really hard to enjoy things <laughs> because you're always picking them apart and trying to decide what makes them good or what makes them bad. But I think that that's really smart being able to look at a book and then say, this is why I like it. And then practicing that thing actively before actually like inserting it into your book or like actively revising based on something that you see going well, I guess.
1: So speaking of picking things apart, um, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to go ahead and do it again. A thing that I feel like has made a huge difference in my writing ability is that starting with a marketing internship I did, it kind of introduced me to this world of, you know, a 300 word count limit and you have this massive topic to cover. And so the result is you're going to do five or six drafts of 300 words and you have to justify every single word choice. So, I'm not saying that when you're writing a novel, you should do that with every single 500 word block because you would never finish. What I am saying is that it's kind of like exercise. It's kind of like like if you're going to if you're going to like train to like hike a really big mountain, you might do some sprints. That doesn't mean you're going to sprint up the mountain, but it does mean that there's going to be some stuff that carries over. So, if you have the experience of the rigor of is is the right word here. <laughs> <laughs> If you, if you do that for a bit, you'll find that it affects just your normal writing flow.
3: That's mm-hmm. definitely true. And I feel like in the writing community, sometimes we may be over-obsessed over natural talent, which definitely has a part because it is such a very creative process. But there is something to be said just for raw practice and work. And, you know, 90% of success is that raw practice and work like Cameron was talking about. And having the capacity to listen
0: to feedback and revise. I mean, really good writing is what comes of revision, not
3: the first
1: draft. I would say absolutely. Yeah. Part of like what I said is like doing like five drafts for a yeah. single blog post. It's, it's not you do a draft and then decide to start over. It's you do a draft and then I would go check with my supervisor. Yeah, all right. And here's what we're going to do different on the next one. Like, all right. And then we do that three more times. <laughs> Yeah. And I would die if I had to do that for an entire novel, but the experience of taking feedback like that regularly on the same thing and then applying it, which is why writing groups are so important.
0: Sometimes you do have to because do that, that with certain have, passages on a novel.
1: If you have you know, the climax of and you just want to be perfect or I mean I would say I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, your your Peoria sample, but you probably go over that with as fine a tooth comb as you possibly
2: multiple, can. Multiple multiple drafts.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, I probably went through, like, maybe even hundreds. Not hundreds, but at least 800, probably.
2: I think revision is one of the most important parts of writing. I mean, I teach college English and I teach my students that, that good writing comes out of revision. And I think it's one of the most important things for writers to learn because it's one of the things that I find that beginning writers especially don't have. Like They just think that good writers are born good writers and that everything they write is automatically good because they're good writers. What they don't realize is that good writers know how to take those crappy first drafts and turn them into something pretty. Nice.
3: I also
0: want to say that if you are a beginning writer, there's this really great soundbite from Ira Glass where he talks about, yes, Roslyn is what I'm talking about, (laughs) where he says that if you have really good taste and you know something is good when you're first learning to produce it, the stuff that you produce is not going to be that good. But if you continue to listen and continue to work on it, then maybe the gap will narrow. <laughs> I'm going to, um, I'll attach a link to that in the podcast notes. But it has always given me lots of hope. And actually seeing authors that I admire, the different parts of their career, like their first book versus their fifth book, that also gives me hope sometimes. Because <laughs> you can see progress in writers too, even the published ones. So we should probably get on to our actual topic. So what do we mean by rhetorical devices? Does anyone want to give a general definition? Maybe Rosalind, since you are the professor here.
2: <laughs> this is my nerdy part, but um, my my background actually is in rhetoric and composition. Oh. And so, um, so I teach rhetorical devices to my college students in addition to writing classes. But I think you want to start with rhetoric, which rhetoric is just the purposeful use of language. And devices are, well, Mostly literature stole them from the study of rhetoric, but they're things like metaphor and simile and climax and parallelism, but they're just little tricks that we do in um, the way we shape the language and the kind of images that we use that make the writing more memorable, that can add emotional punch, and that can shape your writing style.
0: I took a class from Rosalind about this, which is why I asked her to talk about this on the podcast. (laughs) She's fabulous at it. So I was wondering if we together could talk about like some examples that we could we've seen in books that made something more emotionally applicable to us or gave it the extra punch that it needed or something. I know Rosalind has a ton of them up her sleeve, but I wanted to add a couple. One of my favorite ones um, is Maggie Stiefvater. In all of her books, she does this, but Mm -hmm. in The Raven Boys especially. She very often personifies things. Like when Blue first accidentally steals Gansy's journal, it is described like gansy The way that she describes the pages and the way they're put together and stuff, what she's actually describing is the character who owns it. And she does that very often through setting and through objects.
3: Another one is flashbacks. I just finished rereading Austin Land by Shannon Hale. And she has this really fun flashback line she does every chapter where she shows a flashback to uh, this main character's previous failed relationships and it's a good tool because it kind of helps you see how things are escalating in her life and where some of her problems come from
2: okay so this one is maybe a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't read the Wednesday Wars but this is one of the ones I talked about in my class because I love it so much um and the particular well there's two there's um climax which is building to like the lines that you use increase in intensity as you go on. And then um, antithesis, was, which is a juxtaposition of contrasting ideas. So there's this really wonderful scene in the Wednesday Wars where the main character, um, Holling Hood Hood, is meeting with Mickey Mantle. And this is his baseball idol. And he's been waiting the whole book for this chance to get this baseball signed. Um, but because of things he's got going on. He's in a play for the Tempest and he's dressed up as Ariel and he shows up and he waits in line and he gets to meet his idol and they, he just builds and he builds and he builds and you have this excitement with this kid. And then he gets in front of Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle looks him up and down and says, Hey, listen, I don't sign baseballs for kids in yellow tights and just dismisses him. So like, first of all, you have that climax that builds this really powerful emotional moment. And then he has this beautiful antithesis um, and, sorry, I'm going to read this to you because I will paraphrase badly. When gods die, they die hard. It's not like they fade away or grow old or fall asleep. They die in fire and pain. And when they come out of you, they leave your guts burned. It hurts more than anything you can talk about. And maybe worst of all is you're not sure if there will ever be another god to fill their place. You don't want fire to go out inside you twice. And I just mm-hmm. love, I mean, the power of that, the idea of gods dying, because we, I mean, isn't that part of what makes the gods there? They, they don't die. They're immortal. And yet, like, it captures so much about how terrifying this moment, not terrifying, but heartbreaking this moment was for this kid.
1: One of the things I think is just really interesting just listening to you read that just now is that there. I don't know if there was a single literal statement in that entire paragraph. And yet, it's extremely emotively powerful. And it feels like you know exactly what it's talking about.
2: And he manages to convey really powerful emotion with mostly single syllable words. Which also, you know, things don't, I think people think rhetorical devices and literary devices and think, I have to use big words, I have to use pretty language. And that's not what it's about at all. It's about the effect that it has. I had another
0: example that I wanted to actually read from Strange the Dreamer by Laney Taylor in the very opening. So this isn't spoiling anything. (laughs) Um, I really love this opening passage because she contrasts really, really beautiful images to show just how awful the other side of it is, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read it to you. And this is about a girl who fell from the sky. She broke over an iron gate, crimping it on impact. And there she hung, impossibly arched, graceful as a temple dancer swooning on a lover's arm. One slick finial anchored her in place, its point protruding from her sternum, glittered like a brooch. And I feel like all of those images are so much clearer and horrifying because of the juxtaposition of, of beautiful language or beautiful images with the gross stuff I guess.
1: I was just going to observe that with the example you just shared. I, one of the things I noticed about that one is that it's a lot of figurative language but it's based in a lot of really concrete images. You know exactly what ballerina looks like. And you know exactly what this metal spike looks like. Put together you get this new... <laughs> well, it's interesting because it's abstract but it's also concrete. That's what makes it great. Okay
0: so I want to talk about how we can get these into our writing. And I think the first thing probably is knowing about them. We talked a little bit about analyzing books as we read them or thinking about them, but I also think just knowing what it is that's happening in front of you by studying rhetorical devices is probably Mm -hmm. your first step. Rosalind, I know you have a bunch I'm putting you on the spot here because I didn't ask you about this, but there are are, there are resources and stuff or ways that you give your students to learn about it.
2: So I have. If you're interested in rhetoric generally, but it also covers rhetorical devices, um, I have my students read a book called Thank You for Arguing, and they, I love it because the author uses examples from like classical culture, but he also uses The Simpsons, so it's really accessible, but he has a couple of chapters on common rhetorical devices, and he uses real-world examples, which I think is helpful. If you want an exhaustive list of rhetorical devices, Gideon Burton, who is a BYU professor, runs a website called Silva Rhetoricae and that, or maybe Silva Rhetorica, I always get that confused. But anyway, if you look up Gideon Burton and Forrest of Rhetoric, I can send you the link. Um, He has an alphabetized list of pretty much every rhetorical device you could think of with examples. Um, And one thing I tell my students with rhetorical devices, like don't worry about knowing the fancy Latin name for them. Like I could tell you that the joke I told you at the beginning is an example of a pair because it sounds really fancy. But all you need to know is that it's a surprise ending. That part of what makes it funny is it's not what you expected. Um, so I don't think, like, don't worry so much about knowing the name of the devices. Just I think the important thing is being able to recognize them when you see them and recognize
1: what they're doing.
3: Well, I just think what Cameron said before is huge. Just practice, recognize, and then then try your hand at implementing what you see.
1: So if in addition, not just, not just mimicking things that you see, but knowing why you're mimicking this thing.
2: One other thing that I think is helpful to remember for rhetorical devices is, you know, I think what you mentioned purple prose at the very beginning, I think what creates purple prose is when people try to cram them in everywhere. And I think what rhetorical devices can be so powerful that I think you really want to save them for those moments where you need emotional impact, where you need, I don't know, to add something extra like that sparkle to get readers attention. So you want to use them sparingly. But I think that's also helpful because then I mean, when you know you have a scene where you need something extra, that's when you can go, okay, what tools do I have? What devices do I know of that I could use here to to add power to this scene?
0: Well, and I think that it's just like when you are writing and you have like those little one line paragraphs to give them like a little extra emphasis. If every right. single paragraph is one line, you will lose any kind of oomph you're giving them because everything looks exactly the same or it's it's too hard to wade through it to figure out what's important. I feel like another part of writing being too heavy is using either too much or too frequently using rhetorical devices in a genre that doesn't really support it or not, I mean, any genre supports it. But if you're writing like a YA thriller, there's less room for really beautiful language because they're really quickly paced. Would you agree, any of you? Or are you guys gonna argue
1: with me about this? Awesome. I mean, so my immediate reaction is sort of the idea that I feel like depending on the perspective of the book, so especially if it's like a tight first person, that the rhetorical devices being used in the narration need to match the character delivering them. So if, I don't know, if 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 it's a sports book about a jock who has no interest in English theory, then he probably shouldn't be using, you know, alliteration to describe things i mean that's an extreme example but like i'm not saying you can't have a jock who looks at a sunset and compares it to some really great i don't know flowers and ocean metaphor but if you're going to do that the way they invoke these rhetorical devices should inform you about their character not distract from it right
0: Aliyah used literally purple writing in the outline which made me happy
2: (laughs) i do have one more thing for rhetorical devices and that's just um a couple of really common ones that are really helpful if you're trying to add emotional impact or you know, if you have a character who needs to give a speech and you want something, um, parallelism and tricolon. Parallelism is just making sure the sentences um, use the same sentence structure. Um, but if you have several sentences with the same structure, and you group them in groups of at least three, then they build to a natural climax that can have a really powerful effect. And that's a pretty easy thing to achieve. So go to trick when I'm like, okay, this character needs to say something it needs to be meaningful. All right, they need to say something three times. That doesn't mean it has to be the same thing three times. It just has that that repetition of structure
1: three times.
0: We have been slaughtered. We have been something else. We have been like using similar <laughs> structure.
1: Right. We're gonna fight, we're gonna win, we're gonna survive
2: yeah,
1: yeah. and then you go back
2: on you know but that one actually works well because you are building in, in order of importance I mean I know you just threw it off the top but like to slaughter probably shouldn't
3: have been at the, the beginning <laughs> is
2: more important than winning which is less important than surviving so okay. and that's something I always have to do in revision too is like if I am using those parallel structures to build to a point I have to make sure that they actually increase in importance otherwise it kind of looks a little funny the
0: strength of the statements kind of peter out as they go so people are <laughs> <not> listening <laughs> to the speech <laughs> the opposite effect of what you want. Maybe sometime we should do that on purpose in something <laughs> so
3: the boring. It be like,
0: funny. Later. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I've definitely seen that in various, it's that, that's, that's a rhetorical device parodies use a lot. If they're making fun of a speech, right. someone gave, they'll do that. They'll do that. They're, we're going to fight. We're going to win. And we're probably all going to die. You know, <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah,
0: actually, I'm um, turning a lot of things like this on their heads, like the the rule of threes. I see that one used all the time to have like two things that are really important and bullying importance. And then the last one's a joke, like you were saying with that fancy word that I can't remember.
2: The paraphrosdokian? say. Yes, yeah, That's
0: great. Right. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to our critique. Just a really quick refresher on how we critique. We try not to be prescriptive which means we try not to tell people how to fix things, but rather that there might be something to fix. If you would like to check out the text of the submission, it'll be up on our website a little bit later tonight. Our website is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash lit nation. It'll have our notes on it. Either mine will be throughout the document, but the other ones will probably be at the bottom. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines on our website. But just so you know, if you have submitted over the last little bit, we have a couple of episodes coming up where we don't have guests. And so we'll probably be going back to our submission well. (laughs) So please tune in and listen if you've got a submission with us right now. But
1: if you submit again, we're more likely to notice it.
0: This is 100% true. Also, if you talk about us on social media, we're also much more likely to go find your submission and say, I like this person. I'm going I'm to look at their <laughs> stuff. So let's start out with the summary really quick. This submission is about a girl who breaks into this tower that she used to be a servant. It's a tower where the kingdom Seer lives in order to steal the Seer's jewelry box as payment for a man who's going to help this girl go into hiding or leave the area, I guess, get out of there.
3: So things that we like. Well, the main character, Helena, she, we first see her and she's crouching in a tree and going through all these things about how to avoid the guard. And then she jumps from this tree to the wall and she immediately trips and like everyone hears her and I appreciated that because I feel like often in YA, the The main characters are just hyper-competent and so good at what they do, but this is a little more realistic. At least it would be if I was the main character. (laughs) I identified strongly, so.
2: There were a couple things that I really liked. I liked that a lot of the powerful characters were women, because I think, especially in fantasy, that's not our default assumption, and so I liked that she was challenging that a little bit, and I also liked that she weeded in mysteries throughout, like the mystery of She used to be a servant in the castle. Why did she leave? Um, You know, what is the role of the seer? What is the connection between the seer and memories? And I didn't feel like, sometimes I read chapters and feel like there are so many questions I have that I am intimidated to keep reading. And I felt like there were enough questions that I wanted to know more, but not so many that it was overwhelming.
1: Kind of similarly along those lines, I liked the kind of gradual reveal of why she's here and why she's trying to do what she's going to do. We know pretty quick, she's here to steal a jewelry box, but we get kind of this dribble of, I used to live here. I used to be here as a servant. I was the servant to the seer. And I feel like, I felt like that's the word I'm looking for. Sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I actually really loved that opening line because it gave the chapter like a specific purpose and like forward momentum and automatic questions. Why is she stealing this joy box? I thought that was really cool. I might have some some fighting to do about how the information was dribbled a little bit later. But I do like the way that it was given. That we didn't get everything all at once. And that we got kind of a general outline for who she was. I also really liked the hints of world building that we were getting. Leah, I think mm-hmm. you mentioned something about Valia's blessed toes.
3: Well, I I just agree with that, that the world building there, we're told that the seer has this place in kind of this godlike society, or I don't know how to describe it, but the seer is like a communicator to god or something, and then later on she's swearing by different gods in the pantheon, and then later on we get a few other hints, so I just felt like it was very immersive
2: there, so well done. She did a nice job dropping in bits of world building as they were relevant to the story rather than like stopping for a big info dump, which is really tempting to do when you're writing fantasy Mm -hmm. or any kind of speculative world.
0: (laughs) I really liked the character conflict, too, now that she like established that there were gods and that they had a relationship with this seer. And then she starts praying to them and says, why would they pay attention to me when I'm stealing from their beloved one? Which I thought was a really good payoff really early on on that world building and
3: understanding a mm-hmm. little bit of
0: what was I going know. on.
1: It did a good job of showing that the religion is actually going to be central to the story and it's not just decoration.
3: And then that ending, that was paraprosidokia. <laughs> that was excellent. I definitely did not see it coming. I thought I had it pegged where it was going to go at the end, but I don't know if I should tell it and spoil it here, but it's a good ending to that submission. Oh, well, they can read the
0: submission
1: online.
3: That's <laughs> true. I thought it was really cool too.
1: It did make me want to keep reading.
3: It twisted
0: in a way that made me think that the book is going in a different direction than I originally thought it was in a good way though. If Unless we have anything else we want to add to positives, let's move on to things that might need a second look. So something I noticed is that while I really liked the slow dribble of information, I felt like some of it came maybe backwards a little bit. You guys can argue with me if you want. But I feel like we didn't find out relevant details until after they were they were relevant, if that makes sense. Like we found out she was the seer servant after she was already like creeping up the stairway or we found out that her father had shown her where the secret passage to get up to the Sears place after she found it. And maybe this is just me and my own taste. But I feel like if you can give a little bit of information first so that it makes sense as it's happening rather than having to go back and explain, it makes it easier for me to read anyway. How did you guys go about that?
3: I agree with that. And I feel like in this case, having that information would even have like up the ant for me. I would have felt more tension knowing that she was trying to find a mm-hmm. secret passage and knowing that she was a servant and had a history. And I feel like something that may go along with that is I, I had a hard time getting into uh, this main character's head because while there was a lot of her describing what was going on, um, there wasn't too much about her feelings or her views on the world. And so I felt like I didn't really get a sense of who she was. Um, I just seeing things happen.
1: I feel like that got better as the submission went on, but I would definitely agree for the first page or so that it, it was emotionally dry.
2: Yeah, I would agree that it did get better. I felt like towards the end, especially once we get to like the her feeling like the gods aren't listening to her, we were starting to get more mm-hmm. of her. For all that I thought she did a good job not info dumping too much, there was also stuff that I wanted to know more about early on. And one of those big things was, I think we need to know more about the role of the seer and especially the connection of the seer to memory so that the final scene in that chapter makes a little bit more sense. And so that we know also what the stakes are of going up against this person. Like not just that she's going to get caught and thrown in jail, but I think knowing more about a seer would help raise the stakes
1: i think there's there's a really cool line where i can't remember exactly what the wording is but she mentions that all of the seer's memories something like had made her cruel or something and i found that really interesting but unfortunately it's it's a tell we're told that she's cruel and my immediate reaction well i want to know why like what what has she done what has happened what what is it what i (laughs) this is a circumstance where i want just a little bit more so that i can speculate some more I want to right. know what it is about about having all these memories that make someone cruel, and then, as as you were saying, that would have that would increase the payoff of how the chapter ends.
0: well, and also, I feel like, like Rosalind is saying, something that we see a whole lot in these first chapters is authors trying to use the wrong kinds of mysteries to propel their chapter or to propel the reader to continue reading, and sometimes having more information makes you want to keep reading. If I had known that it was an option to have the seer die and like for her to suddenly suck in all of her memories, I would have been really worried about that the whole time <laughs> she was in there. Or um, if if we knew about the cruelty of this seer who she's worked for, so she has like firsthand experience about what this woman is like, I would have been worried about that, but we didn't get it until after it was already not a problem anymore, I guess. So making sure that you, that's such a hard balance, especially in your first chapter of finding like how much information to give and how much to hold back, I guess. A little bit more fiddling there might be good.
3: I had two small notes, just a reader reaction So for me, when it said that the seer had gone to bed shortly before the grand firework display and that she'd been in charge of organizing the festivities, that seemed a little odd to me because if I was in charge of an event, you know, something will go wrong right before the end. I also seemed odd that they would go to bed right before a firework show, but that's just something small. And then the other question I had as a reader, it seemed odd that the keep would have fewer guards during the festival. Because in my mind, I equate festivals with like drunken riotousness and inhibitions. And so I, I would think more guards during a festival, especially since people from foreign lands might be coming in or those are just a few of the thoughts I was having.
1: Yeah, so... Along those lines, um, I felt like, like the world building was interesting on, on, on kind of like a flyby level where we have the idea of the seer and stuff like that. But I felt like it's started to fall apart closer to the ground. Like we have the detail where apparently the seer and her heir, it says they organize the entire festival. And I'm wondering that they, they, they don't delegate at all. Um, well, and
0: also if you're a seer and your job is to like plan parties, I'm not sure what that means about the world.
1: <laughs> right, and and there's sort of this disconnect where, like, from the flyover details, I get the impression, like, like you know, this is the fantasy equivalent of the Pope, and yet, I mean, on the one hand, it's interesting to have a YA protagonist who's not hypercompetent, but it doesn't make me believe the world that this non hypercompetent protagonist can break into the Pope's bedroom and think they're going to get out alive. It it just feels too easy.
2: Well, I agree with most of, with with what you're saying. I found some of those details not very believable especially the idea that there would be so few people at such an important residence i mean if the sierra has such a big role in the the castle there would be more people there there would be more going on and i was also a little confused when it said you know there's only one guard and yet we walk into the keep and there's another guard right there somebody that she knows in fact Mm. so some little details like that sometimes there were details about the blocking that i was confused about like when she's going towards the stairwell and I thought she was in the stairwell, but then she's hiding under a table. Just some little things like that, that I think watching where the character is and where the descriptions come up, sometimes those were a little confusing to me.
0: I had some problems with the blocking, too. Like, I really liked the face plant onto the wall, but I was actually kind of confused about what was going on during that. Like, where she was and where the guard was and exactly how that worked. And... Also, I thought there were a couple of details. This might have just been me. So stop me if you guys don't think that this was a thing. But there were a couple of details that I felt like were called attention to where there's like a very cool ladder and a very hot rope. And I thought for some reason that was like the beginnings of a magic system because they were so like clearly stated by themselves in sentences, but it didn't actually materialize into anything. I suppose it still could. But did you guys notice that?
2: I did, but then I thought she kind of explained it when she said the gods were protecting their chosen ones. So I felt, but I did want a little bit more there because I wasn't sure if that was coincidence that these things were breaking down or if that was actually the gods intervening in that world.
3: I'll second that. There was a line where she laments how difficult it had been for her so far, and then she goes on to list the things that have broken. Uh, But in my mind, just the fact that she hadn't gotten caught yet made it seem like it had been pretty
1: Right, it feels like she'd actually been really, really fortunate.
3: Right, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) And coincidence is fine so long as it causes problems, but too much coincidence on the side of your main characters isn't always a good thing.
1: I mean, right. I can see a reversal coming where it's like, it actually turns out you were totally being blessed the whole time and the gods meant you to become the seer, and that's why you made it in.
3: That's yeah. true. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense.
1: But I don't know, just things like, like the fact that there's a tree that like grows up onto the wall, like that's just not, like in a place where you care about security, you don't have trees growing close to the wall for exactly the reason we have in the story, because right. it lets people climb up onto the wall without being seen.
0: Which could so, mean that the seer has like some cool magical ability to like ward people off, so it's not that dangerous it to like, could. grow up. Own, but it that didn't could. actually materialize into anything.
1: But I'm going to insert a link right here in our podcast to our discussion last week about lampshades. This is true. <laughs> and how, if that's the case, we need a lot of lampshading.
0: That's true. I did have one other little tiny thing, and that's that she walked into the room with the sleeping seer with a candle lit, which seems like not a very right. smart thing for a seer to do. And then she describes the seer as having hair in her mouth while she's asleep, which made me think there was something wrong with the seer. <laughs> Which I guess I, technically she died right after that. So maybe there was, but go ahead.
2: Well, well I also had a question about the way the seer was described. Uh, yeah, the candle thing bothered me too because that seems like a huge fire hazard. But she describes the seer as being like her mother's age and hale and hardy. And the next thing we know, she's dying. And I didn't understand how that was happening. And so I wanted a little bit more about like, Did she know, like maybe there were rumors and maybe she's surprised to find that what she thought the seer was healthy. Or was there something about her presence in the room that triggered it? Because the seer kept saying things like, you did this. And it wasn't clear to me what the seer thought she had done.
0: Yeah. And this is prescriptive. Sorry. But um, lampshading there, like even if the character is the one who's asking those questions, like as long as somebody's asking them or if there are answers, that's great, too. Do we have anything else we want to bring up here?
2: I wanted to end like sort of with a positive note. I did think that last, like the last scene in there, that was a great hook into the next chapter. So
3: definitely that was really powerful.
0: I agree. There's tons of stuff to really love about this chapter. It was really fun to read, and I'm really interested to see what... Find, like, I hope this book gets published so that I can read it someday. <laughs> I'll second that. So if we don't have anything else that we want to add, then I guess that's it for this week. Thank you so much, Rosalind, for coming on. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We just wanted to let you know, I think I said this earlier, but we are not going to have a guest. We will have Kristen back, our regular, since before she moved to England, unfortunately. And now she'll be back to critique stuff. So if you'd like... A critique from just us, then send it in this next week. Remember, this is both a video and a podcast, so you can either watch us on YouTube or you can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us reviews and comments. It helps other people to find the show. If you want to ask us questions or tell us how awesome we are or something in between, you can find us on social media. We are Atlet Service on Facebook and Instagram, and Atlet Service Podcast on Twitter. So for lit service, thanks for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.